What's up, my good peoples? Welcome to the Be Transformed podcast, where we're talking about ideas that stimulate wholesome thinking into identity, purpose, vision, and action. I am James Anderson, and with me is Logan Eaton, my good homes. What's happening? Not much. Doing good. Um, just getting our you and I's performance ready for the the halftime show for the Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the, the main old... artist kind of backed out last second, and they oh, contacted man. us. <laughs> As you would. <laughs> we have mean dancing skills. But yeah, doing good. <laughs> doing good. Doing good. Fabulous. Well, today, we're going to... This will be kind of like the, the wrap-up of our case study on leadership, which I have enjoyed. And, um, yeah, so we're going to look at kind of Saul and David. Last last episode was like Saul and Jonathan. And this next section is really Saul and David. And kind of the, their two different pathways and just kind of some of the, <laughs> you know, Saul and David had two very different pathways to becoming king and one utterly failed and the other didn't and the pathway was really kind of I think a big part of that process and so yeah so today we're going to get into that so we're going to start off with first Samuel 15 and um, and this is really where Saul gets his first proactive mission like everything he's done thus far has been reactive. Somebody else showed up. Somebody else created a problem. Somebody his son took action, um, and Saul's kind of always catching up. But this time, um, God speaks to to Samuel, and Samuel gives Saul the mission. So let's break into this. All right, so. Samuel said to Saul, The Lord had sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them. But kill both man, woman, infant, and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Whoa. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in some place. 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. So... Saul gets this mission. Now, just to be clear, the Old Testament is a very different time period. So this list of duties is pretty, is pretty wild. But I was just thinking about this actually this morning, how in the Old Testament, you know, to kind of get rid of wickedness and evil, it's like you had to totally uh, uh, annihilate a people group. But then it was interesting, you know, with Jesus. Jesus then came, and then he died so that 
that wickedness or whatever could be forgiven. And it was just interesting versus like you'd had to kill all these people. Grew. I mean, it's that's pretty brutal, man. Men, women, infant, nursing child. I mean, that's that's kind of hard to fathom. But like the byproduct of Jesus was then that one man died so that nobody else would have to. So, yeah, so Saul gathered the people. I thought this was interesting because Saul, they counted the people. There was 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. Like he's he started to learn how to uh, gather the army <laughs> because on his, on his his last one, I'm, uh, oh, the one where Jonathan... Um, killed the garrison or and then the Philistines showed up there was like 600 men but so he's 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 gaining some skills he's learned how to get people moving all right so so Saul shows up and then he says to the Kenites that are in that kind of area he says go depart uh, get down from among the Amalekites lest I destroy you with them for you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. Now that was a good move. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from some place all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people at the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. So Saul gets sent on his first proactive mission. Here's, and, and, and Samuel lays out what you need to do. And when Saul left to go on this mission, he forgot that list of instructions. <laughs> and he goes out there <laughs> and totally fails. He's supposed to kill all the people, all the animals, right? Like we're not taking any plunder. We're not taking anything or anybody from this mission. Everything is to be destroyed. And they're like, well, but let's. Br-. They're like, okay, we'll do it, but let's bring the, let's keep the king, let's keep some sheep, some ox, oh, some fatlings, some lambs, you know. But everything else, man, everything that's gross, disgusting, we'll ditch that. <laughs> Cause and effect. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, "I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king." For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. So Saul goes out, totally fails, and now God's like, this was a mistake. And Samuel's like, he's feeling it. He's feeling the, the, the pain. The like, oh my guys, the situation has gone sideways. So Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul. And it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went up to Carmel, and indeed he has set up a monument for himself. 
and he has gone around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandments of the Lord. It's interesting that Saul, uh, Samuel went to go look for Saul and couldn't find him. Yeah. Me- <laughs> meaning, like, you know, Saul's got to be uh, feeling it a little bit. Like, yeah. you want to run away from the consequences to kind of slow it down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How can I make some distance? And then he goes and he sets up a monument for himself. In, like, after he totally botched this thing up, <laughs> like, I, it's just like this, this, this thing of ego. Yeah, it's weird. So... Samuel shows up, meets Saul. Saul's like, bro, blessed are you. I performed the commandments. Saul's like, you freaking idiot. He says, then what is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen, which I hear? He's like, the scene tells a different story. And Saul said, they have brought, then he said, they this is <laughs> Saul's blaming the people. He says, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, be quiet, right? This guy's just straight up lying uh, to Samuel. Oh, uh, yeah. And <laughs> Samuel gets pissed. <laughs> Because Saul thinks, he's like, look, man, it's not a big deal. The people wanted to keep it. No big deal. He's like, and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Like, it just got real. So Saul's like, speak on. Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back... Agag, king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Which, you know, I mean, they would have, if that's the only person they brought back, they would have killed, you know, all kinds of people. But the people took the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed. Oh, he's starting to get it now. Did you hear that? He said, the people took the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed. He's like, he can't even lie anymore. He can't spin it. (laughs) To sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. So Samuel said, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. Ouch. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because, here we go, I feared the people and obeyed their voice. 
So it finally comes out, right? He's like, he just set up a monument for himself. He's like, he's, it's like, he's trying to stay in this mindset of like, he was with the people, they made a decision and now they're just like, everything's good. But then Saul gets there or sorry, Samuel gets there and starts confronting him. And over the course of their conversation, Saul's, I don't know, his point of view <laughs> starts to change because he's like, no, nah, man, we did it. And he's like, oh, well, you know, well, you know, some of the stuff we were supposed to kill, we brought back, but you know, it's okay. We're, we're going to sacrifice this holy. He's like, nope. And then finally it comes out, right? The real motivation. He's like, for I transgressed because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Right? So if you go back up to the top, uh, Samuel says, right, he says, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. But you go back down here, and he says, uh, because I feared the people, I obeyed their voice. And so this is kind of, this is like, this is kind of, this is kind of Saul's approach. Is like he he makes decisions out of fear, or he makes decisions to not make decisions because he's afraid. So here he is, bam, rejected as king. Right when he did the botched sacrifice, the king his kingdom was not going to endure for generations. Now this one, God's like, bro, I'm over it. <laughs> so, but still, right? So then. Uh, Saul s- still seeks to kind of save face with the people because Saul's about the people, right? The people wanted a king that looked like a king, and that was their only requirement. Therefore, that's what they got. Now, uh, Saul wants to save face before the people. So he says, he says, now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, he said, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe and tore it. So Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you does ouch and also the strength of israel talking about god will not lie or relent for he is not a man that he should relent like what is what is the shift that is happening will not be unshifted then he said i then so he's like i have sinned yet honor me now please before who the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may worship the Lord, your God. Like his whole perspective, dude, is just about the people. It's not about, it's, it's not about God or his direction or purpose. It's just about hey, how can I please these people? How can I save face? Right. It's like, it's a character. Yeah. <laughs> explosion <laughs> degradation i don't know so samuel turned back after saul and saul worshiped the lord now this is interesting then Sam, right so saul's like bro come back with me samuel's like okay fine 
He's like, now that you freaking tore my robe. Uh, so Samuel, so, so Samuel comes back. He's like, I'm gonna do this one last thing. So Samuel goes. So Samuel said, "Bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites, here to me." Right? Samuel's taking over. So Agag came to him cautiously because he thought, "Hey, surely bitterness of death has passed." But Samuel said, "As your sword has made women childless." so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Hacked him to pieces. I mean, his his robe was already torn, right? Now it's stained in (laughs) red. (laughs) I mean, I think, you know, that's kind of like, I feel like this is like a representation of like what, what God's mission was. And this whole situation with uh, Saul, Samuel just hacked that guy to pieces. I, this is a different time period. <laughs> I, yeah, I definitely have the PG version. Mine just put egg. egg <laughs> oh, does death. yours not say that? No, <laughs> no. What's yours say? <laughs> just Samuel put egg egg to death. Oh, okay, no, it says hacked him to pieces. <laughs> Dang. Oh, dang. That's the OT, baby. Yeah. So then Samuel went back to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul, named a place after himself. And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. Oh, man. So that's kind of, you know, the real transition. Even though it's like this interesting, this transition period, it wasn't physically manifested instantly, right? God's like, hey, I regret you as king. Or, you know, ter- you know, Saul tore Samuel's cloak, and he's like, hey, today the God has ripped the kingdom, tore the kingdom away from you and given it to another. But this is still just like in like the physical, uh, sorry, the spiritual realm. Like for all intents and purposes, Saul is still king, right? Like the the physical ramifications of what God said are not yet displayed, which is interesting. But yeah, so then in 1 Samuel 16, this is when... um, this is when um, God sends Samuel to anoint David. And this is actually extremely interesting, I think. So it says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, <laughs> seeing I have rejected him as reigning uh, over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse, a Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. So, so Samuel's kind of tore up about this whole situation of this whole kingship mess. You know, I mean, you he's you know, if you go back to when the elders first asked for a king, it's like you just start thinking about all the how did we get here? What has happened, you know? Samuel just kind of like kind of running through all these things in his mind. But God's like, look, get up. 
dry your eyes, freaking let's go to work and let's go. I, I, I've already provided for myself. So Samuel's like, whoa. He said, how can I go? If Saul hears of it, he's going to kill me, right? That's interesting that that's Samuel's like, like he's thinking, he's like, no, that guy would kill me. Like how jacked up is that perspective of Saul? Well, it's probably not jacked up. It's just, it's a bad reality. Yeah. But the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I named to you. So Samuel did as the Lord said and went to Bethlehem, and the elders of the town trembled at his coming. Samuel shows up, and the, and the elders are freaking out. They're like, whoa, bro, do you come peacefully? What was the last thing he did? He freaking hag-hag-hagged yeah. to pieces. <laughs> Samuel's the man. And he says, yeah, peacefully. For now, no, he says peacefully. <laughs> I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. All right, this is extremely interesting. So in um, in chapter thirteen, Saul botches the sacrifice. You know, he was supposed to wait for uh, Saul Samuel, but he doesn't. And God said. Um, in chapter 13, he says, The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. All right, so bam, even in that, right in the straight out the gate, we've got a, 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 a dock on his merits because he didn't keep the command. But the point is, is that God already chose who he was going to anoint king back in chapter 13. So God already picks David, right? But he doesn't tell Samuel that it's David. He just says, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you which one. It's a son of Jesse. Not, not the youngest son. Like, he's not specific. He's like just a son. He's like, not that Jesse has eight sons and only seven are going to show up. He says, no, just a son. And it's interesting because why wouldn't he just tell him is David? Like, God's not, like, still trying to figure it out. It's already worked out. But it's like it's like this process of, like, re-education. So it's like the, the people the people wanted, when the elders came to Samuel, they just wanted a king that looked the part, right? That's why it was a big deal that Saul was, like, a head taller than everybody else. So their only requirements were that he looked the part, so they got a king who looked the part, like God met the requirements, right? Because that was all the requirements they laid out. So he picks Saul. So Saul gets anointed king, and bam, the next event is that he becomes king. There was no pathway. There was no grooming. There was just like, here's this poor guy looking for a donkey. He's big. Bam, you become king. But with David... David's not the byproduct of, 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 of the people's wishes and desires. David's the byproduct of God's desires. He says, I, he says, I, I think it was this in chapter 15, he was like, I found, uh, I don't know. He just, he, he, he termed it that 
this was going to be his king. Like this was going to be God's king, God's choice for king. And so God's requirements were different than the elders' requirements. And so it's kind of like this, this process of Samuel having to like have all these sons pass by him. It's like this re-education program because the first, the first son passes by. And um, yeah, yeah, so it was when they came um, that the, the Elab, I think, was the firstborn. Born, he, he passes by and, and uh, Samuel's like, bam, surely this is the Lord's anointed because he looked the part. He was good looking, strong, whatever, of age, boom. He's like, this has got to be him. And God's like, nope. He says, uh, do not look at his appearance at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For a man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Right? So God's looking for God like, it's like this re-education program. So here's another guy who looks like Saul, right? Who looks the part, but inwardly is not the part. So instead of God just being like, hey, it's going to be the youngest son, Samuel's got to go through this process to kind of like relearn, like, the people had one way of picking a king, but I have another way. And it's just this uh, re-education process, which I think is super interesting. And then not only that, and we'll get into this uh, a little later, is that their pathways to king, Saul's pathway to king and David's pathway to king, was totally different. Saul gets anointed king and then becomes king pretty quick. But David gets anointed king and then does not become king very quick. And because David had a quite a process to actually become king, and that process prepared him for that position versus Saul, the poor guy, just gets anointed king and becomes king and there's no preparation. There has been no king before, you know, God kind of and Samuel, you know, wrote out what the duties of a king were. But it's like Saul had no, there's no context, you know, for their government to have a king or whatever. So, all right, so so just to skip ahead, um, you know, uh, all the sons of Jesse passed by, you know, there were seven that showed up, and Samuel's like, hmm none of those are it. Do you have another son? Like, he's just got to work it out. And he's like, oh yeah, he's at the sheep. He's like, come on, son. He's like, bring him out. He's like, we're not going to sit down until you bring him. And he's like, okay. He goes and gets David. He's young. He's handsome. And um, bam, anoints him king. And I'm not sure if like everybody knows at this point, because they're at the sacrifice. I'm not sure if everybody knows that this is about being anointed king or what. Um, but yeah, so David gets anointed king and then, um, the next kind of thing that happens is that, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it says in 13, it says, then Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers, anointed David, and the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose and went to Ramah, took off. All right. So, so Saul botches the mission. God rejects him as king, anoints David, 
And now the next thing is that Saul gets this tormenting spirit. And it says, but the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. Now this is, this is interesting because now we're getting into David's process. And Saul's servant said to him, surely a distressing spirit from the Lord is troubling you. Let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful, a skillful player of the harp. And it shall be that he will play it with his hand when the distressing spirit comes upon you and you shall be well. So Saul said to his servant, provide me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then one of the servants answered and said, look, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech and handsome in person, and the Lord is with him. Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son, David, who was with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, skin of wine, a young goat, and sent them by his son David to Saul. So David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. Then Saul went to Jesse, saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. And so it was, whenever the Spirit of God came upon Saul, that David would take the harp and play it with his hand. Then Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. So this is interesting because David gets anointed king, and now Saul ends up with this problem, and David becomes the solution. And because David's the solution, he gets this inroads into the presence of the king, where now his like he starts to get exposure to what it looks like uh, to be a king. Not that Saul's the perfect example, but it's an example. So you can start to see the good and the bad. But this is, it's just interesting, this inroads that now David has into what it looks like to be king, because Saul has this problem. And this is also interesting because Saul has this problem. He gets this distressing spirit. Then somebody's like, hey, man, what if we um, uh, got the spirit... What if we play, maybe we get somebody who can play some music, right? These guys are like problem solving. What if we get somebody who can play some music and that'll make you feel better? All right. So this guy says, hey, well, you know, there's this one guy, son of Jesse, and I've heard him play some music and it's pretty banging. So what if we bust this guy, bring him out here? He's good looking. He's handsome. He talks well. Why does that stuff matter? That stuff matters because your environment matters. So as a king who would seek to have a good environment, you want uh, some handsome people in your presence, you know? So anyways, <laughs> so David somehow is like known, at least by this one guy, for being like skillful. And this is interesting because there's this quote that says um, something to the extent of, when opportunity arises, it's too late to prepare. Yet David has developed some skills 
already, right? Like he's just kind of kicking it with the sheep. Maybe there's somebody else out there. And, you know, day in, day out, probably out there sleeping outside with the sheep and the cold and the hot and the... And, you know, to stay off some boredom, <laughs> you know, he busts out a, a harp or, and just starts, you know, teaching himself how to play. And then the other skill he develops while he's out there is slinging some stones. You know, a little target practice. You set up a rock on another rock and you try to hit it. You know, you're just out there chilling. And <laughs> as the sheep are just grazing, you know. But it's like he's been like preparing and maybe it didn't even look like you know he was preparing or maybe you know whatever but he developed these skills and not only that but some he had to play somewhere at some point where somebody else saw him and was like hey that guy's got that guy's got skills like he was already somebody already knew him as being somebody who was a skillful player and that was the inroads that he had Sometimes it's like, sometimes it's easy to think, even if you got some vision, it's like, well, when I get there, you know, if I get there, when I get there, I'll develop the skills that I need. The problem is, is if you don't develop those skills now, you'll never, you'll never get to where you can see. And so it's like David developed these skills and these skills were the things that were very necessary for the the purpose that God had for him. And I think that's extremely interesting. The you know, the preparation beforehand. Yeah, it is just interesting the comparison between the two upbringings of both of the the kingships. Um and David was kind of you know, I guess the process for David was a lot more a lot more slower, like you said, and he was able to kind of learn and see things a lot better, which, um, you know, coming into a, an experience that you've never had before, it is important to take advantage of all the experiences prior to that because you never know what, you know, what might be being used in the future. But I like that I like that quote, that the when opportunity rises, it's too late to prepare. I like that. So it's like you just take take advantage of the time and the experiences that you have now because it might be... Or something is likely coming where you're going to need that experience. Yeah. Yeah, there's another quote that says, um, oh, yeah, luck. Luck is when opportunity and preparation, like, meet. Like, <laughs> yeah. other, other, otherwise, right, like, your opportunity will just kind of make you look like a fool. Like, i.e., Saul kind of looks like a fool. Like there was no preparation. I mean, the the poor guy, God had to change his heart. And then I don't know if he just went back to his old environment and just became his old self again. But like he was not prepared, groomed, didn't go through any kind of process to become a successful king or a leader. But here's David, right? And so David already has a skill that's solving a problem, right? And right now that's playing a harp. Chapter 17 uh, is David and Goliath, and then David shows up, and then he uses another skill he developed to solve a problem. 
Like David is solving problems with the skills that he's that he has developed. And these things have like have have prepared him for his moment. Versus Saul, Saul, poor guy. He was just looking for his father's donkeys. <laughs> oh man, sorry, buddy. But yeah, he just he homeboy didn't have any skills. You know, when he got when he was like chosen to be king in front of everybody, Saul was hiding in the in the luggage. <laughs> So it's just, you know, it's just interesting that the preparation matters. And like you said, you know, it's like using using the time you have now. I think sometimes when you have vision, uh, sometimes it's easy to get distracted on like the big picture and like, you know, the fully developed picture. And it's like the the steps that you take in the beginning look absolutely nothing like you know, the picture you see, like the big picture. Yeah. And so, so sometimes it's, it's, it's easier to get focused or somewhat kind of like distracted on the big picture and then not understand what the process looks like to work towards that bigger picture. Right. And so if you get distracted, then you're not developing, right? But using using the space you have now, understanding the time now and the preparation now, and which we'll get into um, at the end of chapter seventeen, but just like the the process towards the word that you have, there is a process, and as we'll find out, sometimes a process doesn't look like it makes any sense, or or <laughs> yeah, it looks kind of crazy, but. The process is necessary to become, to develop uh, into the person you need to become to be able to handle um, what you're called to do. So if we break break into First um, Samuel 17. It says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle and were gathered at Sokal which belongs to Judah. They encamp between that place and another place in another place. And Saul and the men of Israel gathered together, and they encamped in a valley and drew up battle array against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side with a valley between them. Now a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubics and a span. Is that um, imperial? What's that measurement right there? <laughs> and, and, a bronze, and a bronze helmet on his head. Uh, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had a bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, and a shield-bearer went before him. Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants." 
If I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. When all Israel heard this, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. This is how Saul and the army typically handle situations. They become afraid and dismayed. Like this is kind of their signature move. So... Goliath, right, so what? The Philistines show up, right? They come into the Israel territory, and uh, bam. Israel finds out about it, so they gather their army, and they meet up. Now they're like, you know, onto mountains or what hills or whatever, and there's a valley in between them. All right, so then this really big dude pops out of the crowd, right? Freaking 9.9 feet tall. He's got armor that weighs 125 pounds, and the iron point on a spear weighs 15 pounds, right? So this is a big dude who's also a big dude, right? Like sometimes you get super tall people, but they're not like they're not like thick. This guy, however, was super tall and was super thick. I mean, he's just walking around with 125 pounds of armor. I mean, dude is yeah. strong. <laughs> So, and also really tall. All right, so super intimidating guy pops out, right? Now, this guy, he's got an idea. Goliath, right? He's got this idea. Or maybe it was a premeditated plan. Maybe maybe they they worked it out uh, beforehand. But any way you slice it, homeboy comes out and he paints this picture, right? He's like, like, dude, we're going to... You guys are dropped to battle line. You think we're all going to battle as like a big army? You got it wrong. He's like, we're going to do this one-on-one. Me against one person on your army. Saul and all Israel hear these words, and they chew just totally like dismayed, terrified. Like, you know, heart just straight up sinks like into your guts. You're like, oh, my gosh, this is terrible. But this is kind of like how this is, again, this is how they kind of react. So Goliath comes out, right, and paints this picture. Now Saul and Israel, man, they can't see this situation going any other way. Goliath presents these terms, and now they think that they have to abide by them. Right? Israel has no... There's no reason why they have to listen to Goliath. That guy just came out there and said a bunch of crap. Who cares? Right? Like, they could have easily just said, hey, let's send 10 guys out there right now. Go kill them, and then we're going to engage in battle. Right? They could have just took action right there, thought outside the box that Goliath painted, and just went freaking killed him and moved on. But they didn't. Because the, the box that Goliath painted, they got stuck in. And they're like, oh, crap. Here's this guy. He's saying we got to send one person out there. What are we going to do? 
right? Like they totally just letting him dictate the terms. You know, Israel gave him and the Philistines like permission. They, they yielded, they followed, and they, they, they let the Philistines lead in their decision-making process. They totally just like tapped out, crapped out, was like, they, they got so sold on this idea that they're like, I can't, I don't know that there is another option. We have to send somebody out there. So there's this concept called sell or be sold by, uh, this is from Grant Cardone. He wrote a book about it. And essentially it's like, um, if you're trying to make a decision with another human being, like one person is selling an idea or perspective and then somebody's got to kind of get sold on that idea, right? Like, you know, even if you and me wanted to go like, Hey, we're like, Hey, let's go, uh, let's go out to eat. You're like, yeah, man, let's, uh, let's go to Qdoba. And I'm like, oh man, I had that like last week. Maybe let's go, uh, to, to B-dubs or something, you know? And you're like, ah, you know, that the hot sauce gives me the runs. You're like, let's go to, uh, let's, let's go to Texas Roadhouse, whatever. Like you're trying to sell your idea to the other person trying to convince them to kind of buy what you're saying. And, um, and in this case, Goliath is selling and Israel has sold. Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting. You know, when we kind of first learned that, uh, that concept, sell or be sold, like it had a, it had a, it had a really good impact on us, you know, in the pressure washing business, you get people who would call up, and, um, you know, sometimes people would like, they would just kind of become aware, like, oh, my house is dirty. And then they would get really excited about this idea of hiring somebody to come out and solve that problem, right? So they call, call up and, and they're just excited. You just, you get excited about a project and, you, and you're like, man, maybe they could come out today, right? And so people would call up and they, they would kind of have this urgent request, you know, they'll be like, hey, you know, I want to get my house washed. Uh, can you guys come out, you know, maybe as early as today or sometime this week? And before we learned this concept, right, you would feel kind of the pressure of this request. Somebody just called up, had an idea, and we're like, hey, you know, has no context of what's going on in your schedule and your business, but just calls up and is like, hey, man, can we uh, want to get my house washed? And so you want the job, right? You don't want to turn away business. So you want the job, and so, you know, you can feel that pressure to, like, oh, man, how are we going to, how is, can we squeeze this person in to the schedule? And so you'd feel that pressure, and you'd try to figure out how can I accommodate that, right? They came in, sold an idea, and now we're trying to figure out how do we make that work. But the problem is, is, like, that could jack up your schedule. Like, you know, if you're a couple weeks out... You either have to work a longer day or or reschedule somebody. And so in that instance, right, we were being sold on somebody else's uh, idea or somebody else, just the way they thought about it. So we were being sold that. And you would feel the pressure, and we didn't really, you know, you just didn't know how to handle it any differently. But then we learned this concept, sell or be sold, where it's like, all right, somebody presents an idea, that's not the only option. Like you can actually have a negotiation. You can actually share a different opinion. You can paint 
a picture that works better for you. So it's like we learned, I'm like, all right. Somebody calls up, they got this urgent request. Instead of getting emotionally connected to their request, it's like, all right, hey, man, awesome. Yeah, we'd love to wash your house. You know, what about uh, next week on Wednesday morning? And sometimes they'd be like, oh, yeah, that's fine, right? So they had this urgent request, but, like, it wasn't a big deal to schedule it later, even though they were requesting, like, immediate. Now, sometimes you you get people who are like, oh, we're going to have a party tomorrow. We need to get our house washed. We're like, oh, man, sorry, can't help you. We could come out next week or two weeks later, whatever. And sometimes you might lose those people, but it doesn't matter because it's like you don't have to bend over backwards just because somebody presents... Uh, a request in a certain manner, right? I mean, that kind of, you know, if, even if you're working with people and, and somebody says, hey, I need you to do this and, you know, and on, in this time frame, well, if you've got other things going on or maybe you're looking at the situation from a different perspective, you don't have to just accept what somebody suggests, even if they're higher up. Like you have the ability to influence the outcome with communication, you can paint a different picture. You say, oh, man, totally. We need to get that done. I got this and this going on these days. Could we push that timeline back a little bit? And they'd be like, oh, yeah, no problem. Maybe they'd be crazy and they'd be like, no, we need it like the priority shifted. But you don't have to just say yes because somebody presented something in a certain way. Like you can have a say. You can negotiate. You can change the perspective. But here, the Israelites got so emotionally connected to this idea that now they're like, they cannot see another way. They're like, we have to send somebody out there. Only we have nobody we can send out there. So, bam. So Saul and Israel, they hear these words, and they're like, oh my gosh, this is bad. Okay, so now David there's a, was the son of Jesse. Uh, Jesse had eight sons, father Abraham had many sons. And the man was old, advanced in years in the days of Saul, and the three oldest sons followed uh, Saul to battle. The names of the three sons were uh, those names right there. And David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul. But David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep in Bethlehem. So, right, so in chapter 16, we find David comes and he works with Saul, he plays the music, but then he also becomes his armor bearer. But in this case, he didn't actually come out uh, to the war. He stayed with the sheep. So it's kind of interesting. So the Philistine drew near and presented himself. 40 days, this guy came out. 40 days, morning and evening, with this steady diet of... We're not going to fight army to army. You send out one person. Whoever wins, uh, the other army serves. This guy comes out for 40 days in the morning and the evening. And nothing happens. Saul's approach of like, hey, let's just wait and see. Let's make it. Let's make a decision to not make a decision. Hey, let's not send somebody out there. But this is our only option. So let's just sit here. And do nothing. So, so much time is going by. Jesse, right, the father of the three sons, the father of David, he's like, 
hot dang, this is taking forever, right? Because your your armies like your battles last a couple days. You get out, you could, you have to travel to wherever you're going to fight your war. Maybe it takes a few days, and then you're done. But Saul's been doing so much sitting and waiting that Jesse's like, dude, what the heck is going on? So Jesse said to his son David, take now your brothers, an ephah uh, of dried grain, these 10 loaves, and run to your brothers at camp and carry these 10 cheeses to the captain of their thousand and see how your brothers fare and bring back news of them. Now Saul... And they and the men of Israel were in the valley of Ali. Now this says fighting with the Philistines. Unless they were having small skirmishes, there was no fighting going on. So David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with the keeper, and took the things and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the camp as the army was going out uh, to the fight and shouting for the battle. Now, There was no fighting going on. Twice a day, Israel would show up to the battle line because the Philistines would, and then Goliath would come out and, you know, sell his spiel. So this is bad. (laughs) 40 days, man, that's long enough to create a habit. And like in 40 days of not making decisions, of people just being terrified. Because like, because here, well, because check this out. So for Israel and the Philistines had drawn up to battle array, army against army, and David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper and ran to the army and came to greet his brothers. Then as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke according to the same words. So David heard him, and all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So they're lining up for battle. But twice a day, every day, for 40 days, Goliath comes out. And when he comes out, these people run from him in fear. Like this is the environment of passivity, is it creates like the inability to take action. And so now these guys are just running and afraid. Like it said that they came up to the battle, you know, the battle lines and and they're shouting and everybody's like, yeah, come on, let's go. And then Goliath shows up and everybody's like, oh my gosh. They like run away like as if that, that, was, that hadn't happened for the last 40 days. <laughs> it's just, it's so bad. Like when you let the enemy dictate the terms, somebody sells something, you get sold on it, but you, you don't want to make a decision. Like, I mean, that was business too, man. That was like, you get a job, you got to make a quote and you're like, I don't know. It's like, I don't, you know, it's hard to sometimes make the decision of how much you're going to charge. How long is it going to take? Like, I don't know if I say this much, are they going to say, are they going to, you know, say no to the price and walk away? And, you know, sometimes you don't want to make the decisions. And so you, you, you procrastinate a little bit, you know, maybe a couple hours, a couple days. But it's like at the end of the day, man, you still got to just make a decision. So you might as well learn how to make it quick and get after it. Otherwise, otherwise you turn into these guys. So the man of Israel said, have you seen this man who comes up? Yeah, like for the last 40 days, twice a day. Surely he has come up to defy Israel, right? Because remember, he already said, I defy Israel's army. And it shall be that the man who kills him 
the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter and give him give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, Hey, hey, what? He said, Hey, what, what shall be done for the guy who kills this guy and takes away this reproach from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Who should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in this manner, saying, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now, Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the man, and Eliab got ticked and said to David, He said, Why have you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and your insolence of your heart, for you have come down just to see the battle. And David said, Bro, what have I done? Is there not a cause? Then he turned from him towards another and said the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. Now, this is actually kind of interesting. David had the opportunity to get distracted by his brother, like kind of yelling at him for even being here. Like he had the opportunity to kind of shut down, turn down, because David gets there, sees this guy. He has not been in this environment for 40 days, so he's not a chicken. And he shows up. He's like, what the heck is with this guy? He's like, what's going to... And then he hears, overhears these guys talking. He's like, man, look at all the stuff that'll be done for the guy who who, who kills him. And um, and so, yeah, so David looks into that, and then his brother gets pissed. And he's like, bro, like, you're you're freaking full of pride. You're, you're you know, you're a jerk. Well, you just came out here to watch people die. Like, get out of here. You're slurking off on your responsibilities. Like, this was a small thing, but this was like... Like there, there was a, there's a chance that David could have got sucked in to the crap his brother was saying and could have lost courage, but he didn't. Instead, he totally ignored his brother and, and went back to, um, another guy and was like, Hey, 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 what's, what's going to be done for this guy? Right. And he's just like, Oh, all this stuff's going to happen. He's like, look, man, I'll take care of this. No problem. says now. When the words which David spoke were heard, they, re- they reported them to Saul, and, s- and he sent for him. Then David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistines. Now, David, David's words of courage, which weren't like, he, it's not like he, he stood up and gave like a motivational speech, but he was just like, who is this guy? He's like, who, who, who's this guy to, to defy the armies of God? And that, his attitude was so opposite of everybody else's. He stood out like a sore thumb, right? So people hear him. They told Saul, they're like, holy crap, there's actually a guy here who has some courage. And, uh, and Saul's like, bam, bring him here to me. So David shows up and he's like, hey, man. Don't let anybody be scared. I'll go and I'll fight this Philistine. So Saul said, he's like, bro, you're not able to go against this Philistine and fight him. He said, for you're a youth and this man of war or this, yeah, and he is a man of war from his youth, right? Like this guy's way older, way more experienced. There's no way you're going to be able to get this done. 
This is another seller be sold moment. David shows up. He's like, bro, I got this. Saul's like, Holmes, you're just a little guy. Don't even think about it. Right? So Saul did not purchase what David was selling at first. Right? He's like, no. But David, right? Seller be sold. Does not just be like, okay, objection. You don't want to buy. That's fine. I'll just go home. And I'll take my 10 cheeses with me. Instead, he's like, no, bro. He's like, he what? Negotiates. He, he, he um, addresses the objection. So, so Saul's like, no, you can't do it. But David said, look, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be just like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Right? David was like, bro, I got this. Saul was like, bro, you don't got this. He's like, bro, let me, let me just, let's just back the train up and let me tell you what I've done with my life. Well, you're sitting here scared. I've been killing lions and bears. Come on, son. So David, right, sells and resells and keeps pushing the fact that he's like, no, I got this. And finally Saul's like, okay, go get you some. So so David sells this, sells Saul on being able to go kill Goliath and now... David's got to go make good on what he just sold. So, bam. So Saul, Saul's like, all right, man, we, you know, he's thinking we got to get you prepared, right? So, so he clothes David in his own armor and puts on his bronze helmet on his head and clothed him in a coat of mail. And David fastened his sword to, uh, to his armor and tried to walk, for he, he hasn't like been in that stuff before. And David said, look, man, I can't do this. I can't even walk in these. He's like, I haven't practiced in any of this stuff. So he took it all off. Then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's bag in a pouch which he had. And his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. And the Philistine came and began to draw near to David. And the man who bore the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. For he was only a youth, ruddy and good looking. <laughs> I'm probably not going to say that. All right. So the Phil- I was going to say something, but it's probably bad. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, No, bro, you come to me. He, Oh, no, that's not what he says. He says, You come to me with sword, with a spear, and with a javelin. 
But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth. And all the earth will know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. It's interesting, you know, he's like, the, the battle is the Lord's. He says, then all this assembly shall know, right? Because these guys have been terrified. He says, all the assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with the sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Right? That was the same approach John took, Jonathan took with the Philistines, and that's why he attacked the garrison, and then God responded to that and created this giant uh, panic. So, bam. So here's David and Goliath. They meet up. So it was, when the Philistine arose and came to draw near to meet David, that David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. Then David put his hand in his bag, took out a smooth stone, and he slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead so that the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore, David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of the sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley and the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistines fell among the road, even as far as Gath and Ekron. Then the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their tents. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem." But he put his armor in his own tent. And when Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the, the army, he said, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, I don't know. So the king said, inquire whose son he is. Then as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine still in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And he said, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, Jesse the Bethlehemite. Bum, bum, bum. And he kills, David kills Goliath like a champion. Two very different approaches to uh, leadership. <laughs> one extremely passive and one aggressive. You know, Saul's just looking at it from like the, oh man, we're kind of ill-equipped. We don't know how to solve this. David's looking at it like, bro, the battle's the Lord's. So let's let's rock and roll. These guys are coming to defy us and hurt us. Let's go and take care of business because God is for us. So David's just whole perspective is quite different than than Saul's. In 
It's interesting too because uh, in one of those chapters, oh, in chapter 14, it said there was fierce war with the Philistines all the days of of Saul, right, in his in his rulership. Like this was not like the first battle that Saul was in. And it's like you would think, right, that you would pull from your past experiences. Like you would think about uh, the different approaches you took and the different outcomes that were created, right? I mean, they, you know, the first battle that Saul was ever in, they won. Uh, then there was the one with Jonathan, Jonathan initiated, and they won. And it's like they're they're not they're not like taking time to consider like what did we do last time? What was the thing that made us succeed? What was the things we did that that didn't push us forward? Like they're not thinking about those things. Or maybe they are thinking, maybe Saul is pulling from his past perspectives. And he's like, you know, remember that one time we tried to uh, seek God to find out if we should keep uh, pursuing that one army and then God didn't respond because Jonathan <laughs> ate the honey? Or you remember that one time when we were supposed to sacrifice to God and I totally botched that up and lost the kingdom? Or, you know, <clears throat> you remember that one time when we went to, got sent on that mission and we were supposed to kill Agag and we didn't and I, I really lost the kingdom? So maybe he is pulling from his past experiences, but they're all the sucky ones. But still, you could have thought like, you know, all right, remember that time that Jonathan, first he he went up, he killed the, the, he fought the garrison and won. Then the whole Philistine army showed up and we were scared. But then John and his armor bearer went and killed 20 men. And then, bam, there was this giant panic, right? You could pull from these experiences of like, here's the good things that happened. And here's how we overcame, right? So like, so bam, he's in this situation right now. We got this army. We got this Philistine. We're scared. We're passive. We've done the passive thing in the past. And the thing that it gets us forward is that somebody has to take action. And so instead of getting the courage to like seek for a good solution, they just sit and wait until David shows up and David's like, all right, man, let's rock and roll. But I suppose, you know, it's like the past experiences you draw on <laughs> determine uh, kind of your next move or your path forward. If you're, if, you're, if you're picturing the past from like failures and like people's bad reactions to you and whatever, if those are the past experiences you're pulling from, that's just going to promote sitting back and not doing anything versus if you're thinking about, all right, man, when's the last time we succeeded and how did we do that? When's the last time, you know, something good happened? What did we do to create that? How did we, you know, create those circumstances again? How do we look at this situation and solve a problem versus like sitting in it for over a month? That's a long time to sit in a problem. That is a long time. Totally. So I think the last kind of little um, tidbit I want to grab from this series of um, our case study and leadership is really the pathway to, 
your vision, the pathway to the fulfillment of the Word of God. Because there's a pathway. You know, you look at Saul's Saul's pathway, and he didn't really have too much of a pathway. And because of that, right, like he just he, he just kept making bad decisions. Even with, with Agag, he was given like really clear instructions. It wasn't confusing at all. But like the, you know, it, it seemed like the people wanted to keep the stuff or, or Saul just wasn't able to communicate the mission correctly. But like this mission was an opportunity. It was a test. It was like... It was an opportunity to still kind of like show where you're at. What are you going to do? You know, are you going to, is he going to move towards people pleasing or is he going to move towards like obeying God? Like what's going to happen? And it was kind of like a test, but like homeboy just kind of failed at every, every corner. But David's pathway to the throne was quite a bit different. He gets anointed king, but then he doesn't become king. Then he gets, he, he, he gets in Saul's presence and solving problems, you know, playing music and getting connected um, to the rulership side of things. Um, But then it's super interesting, right? So David gets anointed king. So he gets this word. He's like, you're going to be king over Israel. Like God chose you over Saul. So here's this word, but then there's not this immediate... um, uh, immediate fulfillment. So that's kind of interesting. Well, so after um, after David killed Goliath in the next chapter, um, they, they Israel comes back into town, and um, these these people are singing this song, and it was uh, Saul's killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. So it said that when, when David first came into Saul's presence, that Saul liked him. So he like he loved him. Like he he was like probably because he was like he was so much like Jonathan, you know, it seemed like his own son kind of concept. So it was it was when David first got there, there was this great acceptance. And then he killed Goliath, right? I mean, this is like, oh, this is going really well. But then they get back to town, and now people are crediting David with greater honor than they are with Saul. And Saul's got a bit of an ego problem. So this sends Saul into this like really bad place where it's like all he can think about is how to kill David, right? He gets a distressing spirit and he tries to pin him to the wall with the spear. It's bad. So it's like you think about that, it's like David's pathway to the king looked crazy. I mean, the king is literally trying to kill him. But, um, yeah, so you got this interesting turn of events. And, um, and so eventually it happens so many times where David's like, man, I got to get out of here. So David ends up taking off, and Saul still wants to kill him. And it, it turns out that uh, David ends up going to some cave or some, somewhere, and, um, and then... 400 men come and gather to him. So in like Samuel 22, it's like David flees from Saul. 400 men gather to him. And this is what it says about the people who gathered to him. Everyone was in distress, in debt, or anyone who was discontented 
came and rallied around David. So David has to take off somehow, for some reason, all these people show up. But like these, this is hilarious because these people, we're talking about people who are like bitter, angry, and like have lots of problems, like made bad decisions. Like it's just, it's kind of hilarious. So here's, but like all these situations are part of the development process for David to become king. It kind of doesn't, it might not look like it, like, you know, from David's point of view. But like this pathway is the thing that kind of creates the character. You're learning to manage people, work with people, work with people who are scared, you know. Um, Not too long after those people showed up, uh, I think it was the Philistines or somebody came and was attacking uh, someplace in Israel. And David's like, see, God, he's like, hey, should I go... um, should I go and fight these people? Will you bring them into my hands? He's like, yeah, go. So David talks to these 400 people and is like, hey, guys, we're going to go and fight uh, this army who came up against our people. And everybody's like, no, bro, we're all terrified. and We're just scared. That's why we're out here. How much more scared are we going to be if we go and fight some people? And David's like, oh, my gosh. So he goes back to God. He's like, hey, should, I, <laughs> should we still go? He's like, yeah, man, go. So he's like, all right. So he's so here's the people who are scared. David's ready to go. People are scared. So David re, you know, rechecks. He's like, hey, man, all the people are scared. Should we still go? God's like, yeah, man, come on. Come on. Let's go. And so David leads these people who are scared into this victory. And it's like all these things are just, they're preparing him. They're, they're opportunities. They're leadership opportunities, right? It's like there's problems. And he's like, how are you going to handle this problem? Right? David's like, I'm going to seek God. He's like, hey, what should I do? He's like, go for it. He's like, oh, crap, this is what people are saying. He's like, no, nah, still go for it. Like, this is David getting ex- more and more experience, right? The things that caused him to succeed up to this point was his past experiences, right? He developed the skills to play music that got him in front of the king. He developed skills with the sling and the stone, and that's what killed him Goliath. Uh, before Before that, he killed a lion and a bear, and those things set him up and prepared him to be able to kill Goliath. So now he's in these other situations where it's like these decisions, he's having to consider what do I need to do? How do I find the solution? And then he goes and he implements them. And all these decisions and these actions are leading towards that. It's all part of the development process. You know, you think about um, Joseph and Joseph, you know, Joseph has this dream and um, his, and essentially the interpretation is like his his parents and all his brothers will bow down to him, and Joseph's. I think he's number eleven out of twelve, and um, anyways, his brothers already hate him. He tells them this dream, which was kind of stupid, and the byproduct is he gets sold as a slave. His brothers want to kill him, but instead of killing him, they sell him as a slave. At least you can make a little bit of money, you know what I'm saying? And um, <clears throat> it's just interesting. Joseph has this dream. He gets this word, but then the pathway to the fulfillment of that word looks absolutely insane. I mean, to get sold as a slave would suck. Like there's not, <laughs> yeah. like all of a sudden, like you're no longer in control of you. That's like, that's weird. 
(laughs) But, you know, God's with him. And so he goes, ends up at Potiphar's house and the work he starts doing, like God just starts blessing. So everything he puts his hands to prospers. And so Potiphar sees this and he's like, hot dang, man, this guy's, this guy's my golden ticket. So he puts Joseph in charge of everything. So now Joseph's getting these skills, right? He's in charge of all these people, right? We're buying and selling goods. You know, you're planting fields and crops and you're taking care of animals and all the people who are managing all these different things. You're learning how to work with all these different facets of society, essentially. And um, so, bam, you know, that's going well, (laughs) And then Potiphar's wife wants to get busy with him, gets accused for abusing her, and then gets sent to jail, right? So it goes from bad to like, okay, now it's all right. And then it goes like, this is really bad. Now he's in jail. But the same thing happens. For some reason, the jailer's like, oh, man, let's put this guy in charge. And now Joseph's in charge of all the people taking care of their needs and this and that. He's managing all these different aspects of the jail, which then kind of gets him set up eventually to interpret a dream for the for Pharaoh, which then puts him in charge of an entire nation, which was would be hard to see that that was going to be his outcome on that pathway, right? He has his dream, and then he becomes a slave, then he becomes a prisoner. That doesn't look like that's going to lead you to being able to stand before Pharaoh, but it does. But it's like that pathway was the process to the development of the skills that Joseph needed to be able to make good decisions, right? Because then the Pharaoh had a, had a dream, and there was going to be seven good years and then seven lean years. And so Joseph came up with a plan. It's like, how are we going to use these seven good years to prepare us to be able to handle these seven lean years? And he comes up with this plan, ends up enslaving all of Egypt, which is kind of interesting because everybody sells them their lands and everything. So all the land then becomes owned by uh, Pharaoh because in exchange they gave him like grain and wheat or whatever. But it's like these pathways were necessary for the development. And poor Saul didn't have a pathway. He just kind of got thrown into the fire didn't have the skills, didn't have any good leadership books, apparently. And um, yeah, man, it just didn't go well. But when God chose David, he set him up on a pathway that looked insane, but led to great development. You know, there's, there's twice where he had the opportunity to kill Saul, but he didn't. It's like those decisions that he had to make were interesting because it's like the decisions you make, they they help kind of like reinforce your identity, right? Like there was a time where Saul was pursuing David and they were on this, I don't know, they were on this mountain, they were running around it and um, David and his men hid in this giant cave and Saul and his men were like close, but they didn't know that David and his people were in the cave and Saul goes in there to relieve himself. And while he's doing his business, reading the paper, um, David comes up behind him and cuts off a piece of his, his shirt. 
But all his men are like, bro, God gave this guy into your hand. Go kill him. And so David has an opportunity to kind of take everything into his own hands. But right or wrong, he doesn't. He doesn't kill him. He's like, I'm not going to kill the Lord's anointed. God chose him. If God wants him out, he can sort that out. I'm not, you know, it's not going to be by my hand. And so he cuts a piece of his shirt and he's like David's conscience stricken just by that act. But he, you know, he calls out to Saul and he's like, look, man, I had the chance to kill you. I was so close. I cut off a piece of your shirt. Like I could have killed you and you, you, you could do nothing, but I didn't like quit pursuing me. And that happened again, but it's like those decisions help to reinforce like your character, your nature, your identity, right? And all that stuff's preparing you to be able to shoulder and, you know, the call that's on your life. But sometimes the pathway doesn't necessarily always look like it's the pathway that's leading you towards the fulfillment of whatever that word was. For sure. Got any thoughts on that stuff? Oh, man. Yeah, I wrote down a couple notes just about kind of one thing, one common theme that kept popping up is just the um, um, the fear. Like one one quality of a, of a leader is that they know how to manage fear. Like it doesn't mean they don't feel any fear, don't get scared. Mm. It's just they know how to manage it. Sure. I think one quality of a, of a bad leader is they let fear kind of, I don't know, run the show, run the emotions and on all that. Because, you know, like, like Saw trying to... Um, blaming blaming that he was scared on why he didn't um um why he uh didn't destroy completely all those people and all the, the that ta- that village or whatever and he blamed it because he was scared of the people and so he didn't know how to manage that fear and so he let that kind of dictate his decisions and um yeah, and then fear also, like, or like, the, you know, that 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 story in the New Testament about the um, the talents, the where the where the landowner gives the talents for the people to invest, and the last one was given like one instead of you know putting it in the bank for interest. He blamed fear because he was scared of the the master. When in reality, he just didn't know really wasn't really taught how to manage it or didn't want to manage it or was selfish or whatever. But he blamed fear in that scenario because sure. he didn't want to take responsibility or take, you know, accountability and do something with that money. Mm-hmm. Um, and like the fear, like in, uh, David's brother, or yeah, David's brothers when they were on the battle lines, like, it's just interesting that they were, the one got mad at him and got angry at him. And I think like f- the fear in a poor leader or, a, or even a poor follower is like the fear causes people to get really defensive and short-tempered and, and all that. Oh, so it's like totally. that, those guys were scared oh. and David was just going around asking questions, you know, whatever. And it's like that fear caused um, David's brothers to be short-tempered and get angry and get really defensive and all that. And so it's like it's easy to pick out, I guess, like a, a, a leader that's um, not really uh, maybe destined to be a leader letting that fear kind of control their actions and their emotions and all that. And a good leader knows how to manage fear. It doesn't mean they get, doesn't get scared or don't get 
you know, afraid in some situations, but they know how to manage it. They know how to like pick it apart and understand that like, you know, how to, how to, how to, uh, change the course away from that fear. Um, yeah. And they just know, you know, good leaders know how to recognize their mistakes. Um, like sure. David did, you know, later on in the, in the, in the books. Um, but yeah, that was just kind of one of the themes that stood out to me was just like that managing fear. And it's like, mm-hmm. don't, don't like train to not be afraid, but like train to know what to do when fear comes up or like when, um, you know, when, when those situations arise where people are afraid or whatever. Absolutely. Yeah, that's us. That's, that's a four reels. Four reels. Yeah, so <clears throat> there was this um in Miles' book, The Fatherhood Principle. This is a really good book. Um anyways, he talks a little bit about the tempering process. And um I'm just gonna read a little excerpt out of this thing. But it said that the uh, the Greeks and the Romans used tempering in the process of making swords for the use of battle. Uh, they would take a piece of steel and put it in fire until it became so hot you could see into it and determine if there were any black spots in it. The black spots that the heat revealed were areas in which the molecules were not close enough together. They were weak areas. When the spots were discovered... They would put the hot sword on a steel anvil and hit it with a steel mallet. This, they would strike the spots, and as they would hit them, the molecules would come together. They would keep hitting the steel until they couldn't see any more spots. Then they would put the sword in cold water, and the steel would harden. After that, they would put the sword back in the fire until it became hot and malleable again, and they would look for additional spots. If they found any, they would go through the process again, and they would keep doing this fire, beating, cold water, until they, could, they couldn't see any more spots. After a sword had gone through this process, they could be sure it would not break in the middle of a battle where a soldier's life depended on it. You never trust a sword that has not been tempered. This process is similar to how God tests us. Tempering means testing for weakness to ensure strength. It was interesting, you know, he's like, they, when they were making the sword, they would heat up a piece of steel until you could see inside of it, until you, you could see into it. And it's like, that's kind of what these situations um, did, right? They, they let you look into Saul. They let you look into David. They let you look into Jonathan. When, 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 when you get squeezed, what's on the inside comes out, right? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You get somebody pisses you off so much, you know, what you're really thinking comes out. And so it's like, you know. You know, for David, it's like, he's like, it's calm, it's cool, it's problem solving, let's handle this. Jonathan, you know, it's calm, it's cool, it's problem solving, let's handle this. Saul, it's like, holy crap, this is terrible. Let's not touch this. Like, I don't know what to do. And he freezes or totally disobeys the mission and whatever. But it's like, 
this idea that it's like situations let you really kind of see what's inside of you. I think it was John Maxwell who said, um, I don't know what the word was, but trials don't um, create good character. They reveal your character. And so it's like, you know, that's just looking inside and seeing what's actually in there, what's coming out in this situation. What are you going to do? It's it's just like you said, it's not that it's like hard situation comes and you're not scared. Like it's like, and, and, and the mark of a good leader is somebody who's not scared. That's not, that's not even possible. So it's, it's not like, it's not like there, there's going to be the absence of temptation to react or freak out or tap out or become passive. Or it's not that those temptations are there. It's just that you choose what you do instead of become enslaved by your emotions. You, you're like, oh man, this sucks. But you start looking at the situation objectively. You take stock, you know, have some self-awareness, and then you make the right call. Not necessarily the easy call, not necessarily the most predictable call, but it's like you do the hard things because that's what's necessary. And it's like, that's the stuff that builds characters when you make those hard decisions and you take those hard actions and you keep pushing forward. But it's the stuff that just kind of like degrades your character is when you see what you should do, but then you don't do it because you're scared and you don't want to make the decision. And it's like, you know, you don't want to create the habit of, of continuing on in that process, right? Because that's what had Saul sitting for 40 days in front of the Philistine army because he just he just wouldn't do anything. But instead, it's like being able to see, it's like, all right, I'm kind of seeing what I'm doing and I'm and you're considering what you need to do to solve this problem, even though it's scary or uncomfortable or unsure. Dude, you still got to move forward. You got to take the action, and that's the stuff that's going to help. That's preparing you for whatever it is you're doing next. The process is necessary. And it's like the more we can understand that, the more we can just engage in right here, right now. Do the things that you're meant to do because these are the things that are going to lead you to the next thing. But the but if if instead we take the passive route and the fear route and the like let's just check out route like you're not going to grow you're not going to develop you know you know it's it's kind of like um miles was saying in the tempering process it's like they they'll 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 do that process on rinse and repeat they'll heat up the steel look into it look for the black spots uh you know pound pound those molecules so that they get closer together and then dip it in water. And then they'll do that process again and again and again until all those spots are gone. You, you have to go through that process to become ready. And it's, it's not like it's like this giant beatdown, it, but it's just like, you know, there's just a process to it. And if you don't get into that process, then you're not going to be hardened steel that's ready for battle. Right, it's like who would take a, a a sword into battle that you weren't sure if it was like structurally intact? You know, it's, it's like that proverb, right? It's like 
if your strength fails in time of need, then how strong was your strength? If you can't use it when you need it, then do you even have it? It's like I can be patient when nobody's around, but when people get around, I get impatient. Well, then do you actually have any patience? Yeah. <laughs> it's like the test shows you where your strength is. It shows you where your development is. It shows you where you need to train more, where you need new ideas, need to implement new solutions. The tempering process. Ooh, it's a real one. It's a real one. But it's leading you towards greatness. Got any more thoughts? No, I think that, that summed it up. That summed it up. This has been a case study in leadership. Totally. My good peoples, thanks for kicking it with us. Until next time, peace.